1: Hey
2: everybody, welcome to Literary Disco and Lit Hub Radio, episode 150, Anthony McCann and Style. On today's episode, we welcome author Anthony McCann, whose new book is called Shadowlands, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. It's an in-depth examination of the armed occupation of the Malur Wildlife Refuge in 2016 and its subsequent trials. We will read Anthony's book, but also, as is the literary disco tradition, we asked him to pick a book for us to read and discuss, and he chose the book of poetry, Style, by Dolores Dorantes. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, and... Our fourth guest for today, Anthony McCann.
1: Woo, Anthony! Hello. Hey, hey guys.
3: <laughs> Good to see you. So, people, this is very exciting. Anthony is in um, the Goldberg Studio here in beautiful Indio, California. Was it what you imagined, Anthony, in terms of the grandeur?
0: I wasn't. I didn't know that I would be sitting here looking at the Little <laughs> San Bernardino Mountains yes. in the late light. That's it's a correct. huge amount of public land. Yes. Um, so it's, it's 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 totally suitable for. A, and we've we've got a we're full, well situated.
3: We've got a full staff of helpers, producers. Oh, all around, all around. They're just, swar- they're just swarming over there. <laughs> we've got it. Very
0: quiet though. They're very quiet. Wendy
3: and Rube Goldberg are locked in the bedroom. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we're well secured. This is actually the in a, a doubly
2: unusual episode because Julia is in California as well, yes, and in person with me.
4: All I know is that. I feel guilty being here and us not doing a live show.
3: I know. Um, actually,
4: Todd, I've uh, your friend Lita, who works at Barnes & Noble,
3: uh-huh.
4: came to my improv show <gasps> today. Oh,
3: my, oh, my gosh.
4: Movies. How nice of yes. Lita Weissman.
3: Oh, Lita loves you. She's a big Julia Pistel fan.
4: Well, that I isn't. mean, she's so nice. So, anyway, listeners, I promise I will come back to L.A. soon and we will do another live episode. But, but what, then what are you doing in L.A. right now? You coming to the East Coast.
3: We can do that. What, what am I doing but, right now? Yeah, you, you just did something very cool. What were you doing?
4: Yeah, my improv theater got invited to perform at the Del Close Marathon at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. It's the first year it's been in LA, and it's been really cool. I've been up for two and a half days of comedy <laughs> up
1: yeah.
2: and for no reason. It's a 55 hour marathon of improv. So there are yeah. shows going on at like four in the morning. Improv oh my God. I know. That's I didn't nuts. realize what this was when Julia first told us about it. So I looked it up today. I was like, where's she going to be coming from? And I was like, Oh my God, this is yeah. insane.
4: It's still happening right now. And actually the most fun part for me, just as a total geek is so there's not a ton of performers this year. They shrank it down, and they put out like a list of all the performers. And alphabetically, my name is right above Amy Poehler, so it looks like <laughs> we're equals. I'm like, yeah, I'm before you, Amy. I got you. But yeah, I've been completely improvising my butt off, and it's been so nice. It's such a fun city to hang out and meet the artsy folk. So in um, terms of
3: in terms of cocaine, um, a little bit, yeah, a lot, sure, a lot of cocaine. Okay,
4: so I was so straight-laced this weekend that my friends asked me if I was pregnant, which I'm not.
1: But it's because it? I'm
4: so tired that I feel like anything, up or down or whatever, I will like fall asleep. Right. So I've I've just been, I've been doing the LA thing. I've had a lot of water and a lot of juice. A lot of juice. And a lot of cold brew, to be honest. <laughs> Those are my v- That was
2: the most LA description. <laughs> a <laughs> yeah. lot of juice and a lot of cold brew, dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing fine. Been- well, the
4: other thing is we don't have um like Instacart hasn't really like taken oh, yeah. and so we just, my friends and I just kept ordering things to be delivered to us. I woke up first and I was like, I will be ordering iced coffee to come into my oh cold, God. dead hand. Oh Guys, we live in a ridiculous, wasteful luxury time. And yes. it is, once you get that idea in your mind though, how can you not do it? Right. What am I going to do? Go drive somewhere and get you know,
3: it? We live, we live 15 minutes from both Whole Foods and Sprouts and they deliver the, the groceries to us. Twice a week. Wow. Wow. <laughs> because Twice <wow>. a week?
4: <laughs> Twice wow. a week. Your food is fresh, dude. We're
3: not yeah. messing. Look, yeah. um, when you're living that bestseller lifestyle, you know, you got to live. <laughs> I mean, this is what Anthony is well, going to be experiencing I'm, very soon.
0: Wow. It, I'm so glad it. grocery shopping still take a, a, a fairly large portion of my life.
3: <laughs> yes. I got to drive far. To yes. Bombs. Well, see, this is the problem. So Anthony actually lives out in the middle of nowhere. So I don't know if you're going to, once you're a big bestseller in like a week, I don't know if you can be living that Instacart old foods life. No, I don't think
0: so. Don't, there, there isn't. I think there's a couple people trying to pretend up there that they that they will bring you meals from like one of the few restaurants, but I right. don't really want to order. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's a lot of, there's still a lot of cooking going on. <laughs> a lot of cooking at the McCann has. Oh, All
2: right. So in, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Todd, why don't you tell us about your relationship with Anthony and, and how you guys know each other and, oh, and sure. the whole situation. Yeah.
3: So, so uh, I first met Anthony in 1984. We were in a street, no, no. Uh, Anthony, <laughs> uh, Anthony and I worked together at UC Riverside. Um, Anthony is one of the professors in the low residency MFA program at UC Riverside, um, and uh, so technically speaking, I am his boss. Yeah. Oh wow! This is <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, is uh... it legal? No, no. <laughs> I'm not really? sure. I'm not
0: sure who you guys must need to make look good in front of, in front in front of who. Right. It gets it's, confusing. It's a, you got to make weird. us look good to each other.
3: Right. So <laughs> don't make Anthony look bad or else I'll have to fire him. Mm-hmm. And then if I fire him, he can sue me for all of this. Yeah. Also, he's in my house and I'm not wearing pants. So, Okay. Just well, one of that's those things. definitely over the line. Um, yes. so, but here's the important thing is even if I didn't know Anthony, I would be a super large fan of his because our mutual friend, Matthew Zapruder, uh, turned me on to Anthony's poetry um, before Anthony... Um, became one of our faculty members because Matthews Publishing Company, Wave Books, had published uh, got what three of your books of poetry, something like that.
0: At that point, yeah, now four, I think. Yeah, one, two, three, four, something,
3: like, something like that. Yeah. Um, so An- Anthony would have been three. Yeah, three. we'd be reading Anthony's book, them. whether or not he was glorifying my MFA program by publishing great works of nonfiction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I believe we, I actually picked
2: Shadowlands off a list from a publisher. Yeah. Uh, it It was like the first thing, you know, we get these lists every once in a while at Literary Disco, which like makes me feel like the coolest person in the world. When, I, when we get lists from publishers <laughs> like, what would you like to review or have on your show? And there's it's always just like 50 books. And I'm like, ah, blah, blah. but the second I saw this one, I was like, we're reading that. We are reading that. And Todd, you were like, oh, that's Anthony. I work with him. He's, we'll have him on the show. And I'm so glad. This is like so right up my alley. And um yeah, Anthony, this this book is amazing. You, you, like you yeah. accomplished, like this is my dream to be able to do what you did and like not only live the sort of journalistic life that you got to live in, you know, going to this place and, and meeting these people, but then also just your, your writing is amazing, man. Like mm-hmm. this is so, it is so thorough and well thought out. It's like, it's as much a work of sort of philosophy and legal history as mm-hmm. it is. Uh, journalistic, you know, coverage of what was going down up there. Um so bravo man, like this just really blew me away. Yeah. And, Thank you. Thank
3: and you. I'm sort of curious. So well let's give a little bit of uh, background here. So well we'll let we'll let Anthony give a little bit of background cuz he wrote the book. So I think most listeners are probably familiar with uh the takeover of the nature preserve in Oregon that happened in 2016 um, with uh, Eamon Bundy and his this gang of folks, um, but I, I don't know if a lot of people then know exactly what happened. Um, so, so, Anthony, why don't you just give us sort of a, a thumbnail of mm-hmm. the actual takeover and, and the result of it?
0: Yeah. But also, one thing I've noticed writing this book is that when it was going on, and for the, a few months after, people who a lot of people were pretty obsessed with the story, and they mm. and I could talk about it with about details about all the people and everything that went on. But as the years have gone on, of course, people have forgotten. Also. Right. Um, but so it's yeah, 2016, yeah. right at the beginning of 2016, which was a very momentous year. Yeah, what a year. Um, <laughs> on, Jan- on January 1st, Ammon Bundy put out a, a, a social media missives uh, promising vaguely that there would be, um, that the Lord was about to accomplish something worth uh, joining him for in Harney County the next day. And on, Jan- on January 2nd, there was a protest march in uh, Burns, Oregon. It's a very small town, 5,000 people, but it's... Um, the main population center of Harney County, Oregon, which is the size of Massachusetts and has only 7,000 people in it, to give you an idea of how remote the place where this went down is. Um, They are, they proudly, um, Harney County has the the point in the continental United States, it's the furthest from an interstate, Mm. so it's out there. And it's East Oregon, it's Wow. It's it's high desert. It's where the Great Basin Desert uh, ends. It's the northern end, and then pine forest is pine forest in the north, and it's an economically very depressed place. Except the ranching sector has stayed constant, but that's a always beleaguered sector. It used to be the uh, wealthiest county per capita in terms of per capita income in Oregon, and now it's the poorest. Um, it was a mm-hmm. very much a lumber town. The mill is already ruins, mm-hmm. and um, so it's a depressed area. And there had been an ongoing battle there for some time. Um, particularly between one ranching family that was particularly anti-federal government and really did not take well to the increased, to the, to the new sort of dispensation involving environmental protection. And that, you know, um, created some conflict with ranching priorities and ranching practices of the past. Um, the Hammond family, Dwight and Stephen Hammond, and they had been struggling, you know, with, with, to, a. Uh, to accommodate themselves to that, not really trying to accommodate themselves <laughs> to the, to that new regime of regulations and have right. been back and forth and fighting and harsh words. And, um, and that long-term conflama had been going on since the nineties really culminated with some fires that they set um, of their own authority in order to taking advantage of usually taking advantage of lightning storms to do prescribed burns, which would be a a ranching practice to try to regenerate forage and all this stuff, but they didn't have permission to do it. And they were told again and again, not to do it. And uh, one of the last times that they did it, um, it was to protect, uh, feed on their own ranch, and they trapped a fire crew of local ranchers' kids, a lot of them, up on a butte. And um, after that, they were charged. And they were charged under an anti-terrorism statute that 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 is that, that has mandatory minimum sentence. Right. It, it, is, it is, as the judge in the case pointed out, the mandatory minimum was targeted more towards people mm-hmm. setting fires and public land near... Uh, more populated
3: yeah. area near, near populated <laughs> like areas. setting a fire next to a federal building, now or federal
0: something. building or right. in the hills above Los Angeles or something. Right. Um, but you know there had been also this back and forth, and they had been warned a lot. And in the in the middle of the trial, basically it was it was a complicated uh, verdict scenario, but a verdict came in, and then a deal was made, and they accepted the fact that they were going to be a mandatory sentence. But then the judge in the case picked the day of his retirement to decide not to sentence them to um, the mandatory sentence, and then he retired. So they went off. They served their much shortened sentences. They came back. And these
3: these are all the Hammonds. So this is – the the Hammonds are an old family of ranchers, essentially. right In Oregon. In Oregon. Originally
0: from Northern California, but up there. They've been in Oregon since the early 60s. They've been in that part of Oregon since the early 60s. Um, So – but in the meantime, they served their time. They got out, and the federal government appealed – the judge's decision not to enforce the mandatory sentence. So that turned into, and they were ordered to return to prison to finish their, finish their sentences, which looked to people in the um, anti-federal government ranching world, like double jeopardy, Mm -hmm. even though it's not, not double jeopardy. And it got the attention. The case got the attention of Ammon Bundy who's the son of Cliven Bundy and was at the center of the Bundy, Ranch standoff um, in 2014 in Clark County, Nevada, um, same county that Las Vegas is in, um, but in the the far desert eastern part of the county, where um, where the Bundys had ranched for a long time, and where there was another an- a whole other right, conflama with federal federal authorities over land regulations, and um, the Bundy family had emerged victorious in that particular standoff, <laughs> um, where they had gotten. Um basically because because Am- a video of Ammon being tased went out across the interwe- internet and so, became and became a uh, so cause celebre for uh the, the Patriot Militia section. Right.
3: So the, I guess right. the important thing for the listeners is, so there's this, the Bundy family is, was run by Cliven. Cliven's the, the father. In the, is in the 70s. Yeah. An old racist. <laughs> if we want to be general yeah. about it. <laughs> and then Amon's his son, and he also has a son named Ryan.
0: And they have a number of other sons who were involved in the standoff at the ranch, and some of right. whom came up to, uh, to Malheur. But um, Amon and Ryan were the main were main figures both at the event in Nevada. And then, Cliven didn't have anything to do with Oregon. What happened in Oregon was mostly first the work of Ammon, and then Ryan joined him. What happens? Ammon found out about this case, uh, felt directed to research it by the Holy Spirit. Um, that <laughs> As guided, happens. That just guide, that just get,
3: like what Julia's doing, improv, yep, God like, told her. <laughs> got,
0: like you, yeah. that God guides you to the right words. And he got him in his car, and he drove to Oregon, and he sought out the Hammond family, and he decided to try to protect them from being returned to prison first by trying to convince the local sheriff that it was his uh, duty as a constitutional sheriff which is an idea that it's has low, a, yeah we'll, we'll
3: have to get into that that's later <laughs> yeah, I
0: love to talk <laughs> that. crazy idea uh, yeah. to, per, to to stand up to the federal government and not allow them to be sent to prison the sheriff unsurprisingly did not agree to do that um, and then all these kind of militia people who, some of whom had shown up to, uh, to protect the Bundy family and their own struggle to have their cows not confiscated for refusing to recognize <laughs> federal authority on their land in Nevada, <laughs> showed up in Oregon to protect the Hammonds. And it's a very small town with four co- – it's a very small town, a huge county with four sheriff's deputies. So very quickly, they presented a situation where um, all sovereignty in the region was potentially going to be um, – Overwhelmed, and on January second, there was a the Hammond family basically in the end uh, refused to go along with Ammon's plan to to free them. Um, so there was a protest march led by other militia groups that was just supposed to uh, show support for them right before a couple of days before they were going to prison. But at the end of that march, in the in the parking lot of the Safeway, Ammon <laughs> got up on a got up on a snowbank and he made a little speech that was basically like those of you who uh, don't know what's going on go over to this meeting and find out those of you who know and want and are tired of waiting around um, for something to happen and are ready for something to happen. Follow me and go to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And so he had never been there before, but they all went out there. It was not, there was nobody there because it was the middle of winter and it was a holiday (laughs) and they took it over. And then he announced that they were going to stay there perhaps years and the idea was to turn that land back over to the people, so that the people of the county could govern their own public land and resources. And eventually, that quickly be- became um, as media flocked from around the world to to, to their right. daily press conference. That became that that initial like, claim that they were going to liberate the public land of that right. county became all the public land of the United States. Which and they, then, at the know.
3: same time, um, in our culture, this is also when Black Lives Matter was really jumping off at mm-hmm. the same time. Oh, yeah. So for listeners, you might, if you're just hearing about this for the first time, if you were 17 when this was happening and you're now paying <laughs> yeah. attention to this. So the big question was, so there there are all these armed men who took over this nature preserve in Oregon and the federal government just let them be there for essentially for a month. Um And the big question was, well, if they were African-American and they took over this place, they'd be dead. Or if they were Mexican or if they were Native American. Um, So there were all these other social issues that were involved with it as well, which Anthony touches on in this book. Um, So the truly remarkable thing about about the book, and I don't want to embarrass Anthony by saying it, but we have to, is that this is not just a book about this event. This is a book about what happened to America. Over the course of the last, I don't know, 150 years <laughs> that led to a moment in November of 2016 where Donald Trump was elected. Like this is this is not about Trump, but it is about essentially the, the part of the American experience that has suddenly ended up with a man like that in office on top of everything else. That's the subtext that is the undercurrent of it. But it's also just an amazing book about the West and about the desert and about time, and about place, and about emotion, about sovereignty. And I don't know about you guys, but by the end of the book, I started to sort of begin to slightly agree with some of the more (laughs) arcane (laughs) conspiracy theories of (laughs) Avon Bundy.
4: (laughs) Right. Well, you know, it's so funny. Okay, so I have been sitting here listening, and I have my page open to this just wonderful little paragraph about, uh, you know, writing and thinking about conspiracy theories. So Anthony writes, conspiracy is a hard thing to talk about. Too easy to legitimize. Too easy to dismiss. Regardless the famous paranoid style of American politics is not going away. Uh, not least because many conspiracies of our day are founded on gross distortions of buried intimations about the real cruelties and differences of our global economy and political order. And I, I just love that paragraph because, yeah, with conspiracies, you're asked to take a side. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Are these people like completely right or are they just fucking crazy people hanging out in, <laughs> with the birds in a
1: wildlife? <laughs> right.
4: And it's great to have a book that, you know, takes a poet's mind to those questions and less of like a pop, psychological, pop psychology or pop historical viewpoint. Yeah. So – Damn, this was really ambitious. Yeah, <laughs> That's really, my point.
3: And and so the scope of the book, just for the listeners, is it, it covers the entire month that um, the uh, the Bundy group um, had this place overtaken, and then also Anthony goes and follows the course of their trials after they were removed from. Um, from the land by the FBI um, after uh, one of their folks was shot and killed on the side of the road. And I, I watched that live on TV. I, I don't know if you guys, did you guys watch the the shooting on TV when it happened? No, no, I did. Or, but now I don't know if I did now. I'm like, is it like that thing that we talked about with the, um, space shuttle exploding where none of us watched it live on TV. I I think I watched it live on TV, but I know that I watched it over and over and over again, just like Anthony does in in the book. So here's the the thing that I'm most fascinated by is plenty of people were obsessed with this when it was happening, Anthony. What made you decide, here you are, um, a poet, a professor, living in the desert. Um, What made you decide, I'm going to figure this out.
0: Um, I think it was I thought at the time I thought I was writing a very different book that would be very much more like a poet's book about the desert that Mm -hmm. was going to be about time and uh, like the intersections of messianic time and geologic time and um, thinking about how the experience of history and images of history um, reverberated in spaces of the desert so a pretty esoteric lyrical book Mm -hmm. but then that research led me to given where I live to a lot of reading about um, Native American messianic practices, um, which there's a long history of across the continent, basically, like different messianic religions, Mm -hmm. syncretic messianic religions that were uh, pan-tribal in nature and also had a political function of resistance um, popped up across the continent, basically, as settlement moved west. But the most famous one is the Ghost Dance, which is kind of the final
1: Mm -hmm. uh, big
0: messianic movement um, came out of Nevada. Uh, The prophet of it was a man named Wavoka, um, who was a a northern Paiute shaman, who had a vision that had elements of many of these messianic uh, movements. And I was really interested in that, um, particularly one of the ones that he seems to have borrowed from because of the elements of that that spoke to some of the things that I was interested in about time and also thinking about Uh, the cruelties of our economic order and Mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, This is the dreamer sect from uh, the Columbia Plateau uh, whose prophet was a man named Smohala who famously preached that uh, that, um, his people were not allowed to work or own land because to do so meant that they would not be able to dream. (laughs) And he, I totally agree. <laughs> he <was> like, <laughs> um, but he, he, he defined like hunting and digging for roots and fishing was not work. Right? Mm-hmm. And, but he he saw definitely like agreeing to own land individually was the end of their culture, and that this would be punished um, if if people chose to do it, they would be punished by being um, when the earth was overturned when the earth was overturned and made new again, and the white people who were called in that part of uh, the Northwest Boston's mm-hmm. or uh, Americans were Boston's. There were the British and there were the French, but Americans were Bostons. The Bostons would be driven out, the earth would be made new again, and um, the dead and the living would live to, would be together. And I was really interested in all of this stuff, and I was writing about it. And then this thing happened with this other current of American messianism, this really Latter-day Saint version. Right. The Mormon com- messianism. Mean. And, and, and the rhetoric coming out of it was very clearly that. Plus, there's nothing more. Nothing creates messianic time like an armed standoff situation where you're you're just you're literally living right. the final <laughs> days and talking about God, and it was happening in the space of this, the where all this religion had had come out of. And I was talking to one friend about how I thought maybe I should go up there. I feel compelled to go there, and he kind of, he's a journalist. Our friend Ben Aaron right, right. told me like, well, you should just go, and it hadn't occurred to me that I could do that, and <laughs> so I did. And I called the people. The, uh, at, at, at by that point. Um, the leadership of the local, uh, Paiute tribe, the Burns Paiute tribe or the Watatika as they call themselves had, um, gotten involved because, uh, Ammon Bundy had said he was going to return the land or he and his friends were going to return the land to the rightful owners. <laughs> so very quickly they had a press conference and they said, well,
3: morons, we, uh,
0: <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, but no, we don't want you to return it. We're not going to accept it from you. Yeah, They made jokes about accepting it, but we think that you don't mean us.
1: Right. Um, and so
0: I called, I called them and finally I got Charlotte, the, the head of the tribe at that point on the phone and said, I want to come up and talk to you guys about both all this history and what's going on right now, and she said, come on up, and then I went up there.
3: Yeah, the the stuff with the the tribe up there and and these guys not realizing that they're on tribal land and that everything that they're saying is absolutely moot as it relates to the place where they are. It just shows you the lack of foresight in the messianic Mormon militia movement. Yeah. <laughs> just just absolutely amazing.
0: And, and just in it also. In a lot of ways, it, I mean, it came as a total surprise to them.
3: Right.
1: But
0: then, of course, the fact that this land itself was had this symbolic value and was this disputed territory right. meant, of course, it's like where the it's where the water is. It's a desert. It's a marshland bird refuge in the middle of the desert. So, of course, it's been the center of human life. For thousands Since and thousands of years of time, right so of right. course it's a place where people gathered every winter so it's just full of the dead right and it's full of artifacts they just they're just they just leak up out of the ground everywhere
3: there's so much wonderful writing in here Anthony, about uh particularly from the from the Paiute perspective of what it means to be on the land and what it means to essentially be surrounded by history um there's i mean you you're a wonderful writer about the desert in general but when you're talking to um, the tribe members up there about this stuff, you're you're touching on things about the essence of home that I've never really thought of before, um, and and what what history means to someone who've uh, who've lived off the land all that time. I mean, some extraordinarily moving um, parts of the book. I, I'm curious for you, Julia, who haven't spent a lot of time in the West, if a lot of yeah. this stuff was like a, a different language to you.
4: Oh, yeah. It's like another planet almost. I mean, when you guys are like, oh, I watched this on TV. Like, I remember <laughs> the East Coast. I don't speak for everyone. My experience was like, oh, there's some crazy dudes. <laughs> and, whoa, every single day somebody's interviewing them. We don't know why. Right. <laughs> Mormons. <laughs> you know, that's, that's it. Like, we, got, we, got, we got some Mormons, but it's not like – Embedded in the history and culture, right? Um, in the way that I that I think is true for you guys. I mean, I was really fascinated by. Well, I mean, also, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show, but the amount that you guys, Todd and Ryder, talk about like the desert and think about the desert. If I didn't know you, I would never think about the desert. It's not like a <laughs> habitat I would consider. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I noticed Anthony in a lot of your like blurbs and reviews. It was like this really shows how weird (laughs) the West is. And the word weird was really like popping out a lot to me. And it does seem like this bizarre otherworldly experience that is kind of hard for me as someone living in the city in Connecticut to wrap my mind around that, like, this is America. And in a way that is a microcosm of the 2016 problem is these – Different parts of America trying and attempting to understand each other or writing each other off, as I just described. Oh, just some Mormons in the desert. What are they doing? I don't know. Um, Whereas they had this huge impact or reflected this mindset that became and is very powerful. So yeah, that was my experience. Just like I mean, and this there's a is point. Weird.
3: In, there's a point in the book where, where, in fact, Anthony says America loves its Mormons. You know, to, <laughs> but in a sarcastic way, we love to make fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah we yeah, love yeah. to make fun of our Mormons. They're they're like the one acceptable cult that we really have. Um,
0: and the church just announced that they're no longer referring to themselves as Mormons. So, they one is really? not supposed to call them Mormons. Oh, so
3: they're only Latter Day Saints. So Latter Day Saints, Saints. Yeah, yeah. but. I don't know about you guys, but the history of the Latter Day Saints that um, that Anthony puts out there about the history of Joseph Smith and that Joseph Smith was assassinated while he was running for president—I <laughs> had no idea about any of that. None. Like, shouldn't we? Like, shouldn't we have been taught that someone who was running for president had been assassinated? Did you guys know about this? I vaguely.
4: <laughs> I didn't know he was assassinated. I. I have, as Anthony's pointing out, like, yes, I am very interested in Mormons. I've read a few books. Um, but yeah, I didn't. Uh, well, I even what you're saying, Todd, is interesting. Like, should we know about everyone who's ever run for president? Is that something that we know about our presidents right. and our vice presidents? But anyone who's ever run, you know, that's a completely <laughs> different thing. Right.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. You know? But um,
4: although obviously it had a huge impact. Uh yeah, I mean he our culture he ran
3: for president, then he also started like the number three religion in America. One <laughs> of right? the largest religions in the world, right? right. Yeah. Sure. So he, it's like, oh he, he ran for president and he created uh, you know, a giant religion and we don't know anything about it. That's weird, super weird. Well,
4: listen, I saw Book of Mormon the musical.
2: <laughs> Taught me everything I need to know. <laughs> and, Just, and, and, and all you that, did was and then read Under the Banner of Heaven. Right. I
4: was gonna say I've also seen the musical Jesus Christ Superstar like three times, so I'm good.
0: You get your theology, um, yeah. yeah. So
3: and yeah. Ryder, I'm I'm sort of curious, you yeah. know, with your Edward Abbey uh, fandom. Like yep. Where where you place this next to sort of what he you, gets
2: a he gets a shout out yeah. right in, the, in in the, I think the first chapter, yeah I mean I you know I well this is yeah because what's interesting to think about Abby because he's you know he's one of these sort of cranky libertarian types that I'm wonder I would love to hear what he would have to say about these people you know uh, I I'm pretty I'm pretty sure he was non-religious so you, you know he would probably have a, a perspective similar to anthony's but it, you know it, like what i love about this book so much anthony is how much empathy you extend to them and yeah. how much credit you give their arguments and these are pretty smart people like when you get into the trials and you get into their thinking there's like there's bad circular logic, but there is logic, you know, and <laughs> right. there is, there is like intellectual traditions that they're right. tapping into. And that's why like the, the Mormonism thing is so fascinating too, because it's, it's so much of this book to, to me ends up being about different conceptions of geography and different mm-hmm. conceptions of, of our nation. And, um, so what it reminded me most of, and I don't know if you've read this book, Anthony, but do you know the book, uh, Prairie Earth by, um. William least heat moon.
0: No, yeah. I have not read that yet. I have that book. Oh, you I have, have to that read book it, at man. home. Yeah. This, yeah, But yeah, I yeah read that this, book.
2: your book is the only thing I've read that has come close to what he does. Your book is, is much more charged around an actual narrative. His is just this sort of, I've talked about it before on the show. It's, it's very similar. It's like a, it's a big book. It's like 400 pages. And he just goes to chase County, Kansas. And like, uh, I'm sorry, chase County, Nebraska. And he just, um, it's because it was the blankest part in the map he could uh-huh. find, and he just goes there and he writes this book that he tries to write. He calls it a deep map, and so he interviews high school kids and does history and talks to natives. And he just does every everything he can to try and capture a book map of this place. and And your book reminded me so much of the same, of the that project in that you know you're trying to understand these people, and in understanding them, you have to wrestle with American history and conceptions of geography and how people think of not only like the actual physical landscape and like the wilderness but um but maps and how they draw borders and territories and who owns it and it's just like when you get into the weeds you realize it's all bullshit it's all like all we are is sitting around we're all just making up systems of organizing reality and like Man, this book, I just, you get to a point in this book where you're like, I, they kind of have a point. <laughs> and, but the federal government has to exist and the jury has to be able to do the things that, a ju- you know, so it's like we're all playing this sort of game. Man, I, I just, I just love that your book was able to like sort of deconstruct those things, but then build it back up mm-hmm. again so that by the end, Donald Trump made more sense to me. Yes. And, and the movement to support him made more sense to me. And while I was reading your book, you know, we watched the, the Democratic debates and like I've had a completely different opinion than most people around me now, because now I'm like, it's not about any of their policies. It's all about feelings. <laughs> you know, like that's what I'm saying to everybody right now. I'm like, I don't care. I watched that debate. Kamala Harris made me feel a certain way. That's all I saying. Yes, I'm I agree. Because, <laughs> and that's so different than the way I thought during the 2016, where I was like, it's about ideas and policies and who's smartest and nope. Now I am like, the way Americans think is with their feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how they feel and whether you build a nation with them. I love this section about the wall where you talk about how it's not about building an actual oh, about wall. about Ken Mettenbach, yeah. Like
0: you,
2: <laughs> yeah, because if you're thinking, if you're thinking about your average Trump voter and you think like, Oh, I can just explain to them why a wall is a stupid <laughs> idea and why it doesn't make any economic sense or security. But that's not the point, right? The point is they want to be unified in a feeling. Mm-hmm. They want to be unified by creating a boundary that's a fake geography. It's not a real map. It's not a real place to them. It's just this feeling map. And like when you wrote that, I was like, oh my God, finally somebody right. has unlocked this part of my brain because I'm still the liberal idiot wanting to <laughs> scream at them. Don't you see how much this is going to cost and how impractical this is? And that's not the point. You can't argue that. No. Because you know, that's not, that's. it's not logical. It's not rational. It's not tethered to any sort of, physical reality it's it's a feeling map it's a, and I just love it's you've totally opened my brain and now I'm just like I feel like I'm proselytized into everybody like we, it doesn't matter who you know who's the most electable don't think of those terms like whether they're white whether they're black who makes you feel something right. because that person is gonna be the best candidate it's just oh, a different yeah. I don't know and
4: why we would expect you know because these conversations are really about like money and families and how you feel in your day-to-day life like how does the government make me feel? Mm-hmm. You know, of course, of course. I listen before politics got really crazy. You know, people thought about it a few months of the year, and that's that. Right. And now it's like all day, every day. We all have a million feelings all the time. So of course, I'm surprised it took you this long
1: to
3: get there. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, <laughs> took, it took me the same amount of time. I mean, when I was reading the what? when I was re- yeah when I was reading what Anthony had to say about the wall, I was like, why have I not? Had the intellectual rigor <laughs> in my own life to figure out what my friend Anthony apparently figured out like three fucking years ago. <laughs> yeah. So when, when you're when when you're writing about this stuff, Anthony, and when you're talking about sort of the philosophy of time, but also the philosophy of borders, when you know you're you're approaching essentially narrative nonfiction from a poet's point of view when you're writing like that. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: How, as a writer. Um, like, do you have the confidence that okay, the average reader is going to want this sort of philosophical thing uh, right up against all these sort of factual things? Is that a risk that you were afraid to take? Is that something that your editor told you to do? Where'd that come from?
0: For me, that's what the story was about, so it, it had it had to be there because that's what drove it through. And unfortunately, that the editor who bought the book was in, was down with that vision, mm-hmm. you know. And then a lot of his work with me was just be making sure that it stayed. Um, Comprehensible to, to somebody <laughs> right. without you know, outside, without a without a philosophy background or something. Right. right? Um, right. Not that I have like a real philosophy background. <laughs> I have a poet's background, meaning I dabble irresponsibly in anything <laughs> right. that, I, that I feel like grabbing <laughs> so any, and becoming obsessed with. Say stuff. <laughs> uh, but you know, for example, for me, the geography stuff just it became so clear that that by the end of the book, I was thinking like, this book is about geography. It's mm-hmm. about sovereign geographies, yeah. but also other kinds of geographies that have different. Conceptions of place that don't really fit in with European conceptions of sovereignty, and about the collision yep. between these abstractions and these non abstractions between the reality of that place and between a community like the Paiute, and also like other rural people of the West whose relationship to the place is threaded through their daily embodied experience of distance and sure. dirt and all of these things, and where those things collide, those abstractions and the balance right. of those abstractions um, collide with the embodied experience of space, but how also the experience of abstractions as feelings as in a nation
3: are embodied
0: experiences that happen as feelings yeah. and happen as a map of space. And so the whole story for me had to include all that stuff is once you're looking at what was happening out of the occupation, the, the layers of stuff that were happening there, because there's another layer, there's another map here and that's the internet. Right. right? Um, and this is a Facebook. Right. This is right. a Facebook story, and this is also a story about what happens to, that to the sovereignty. Uh,
3: it, it, the Ooh. interesting thing, though, about this being a book about the internet is the, that Anthony is not on the internet. So <laughs> if this is a total poet thing to do. I'm going to be like,
0: I'm going to pontificate <laughs> about the about like social media, which I've totally avoided, <laughs> except for like I think six months on Friendster, and I never. <laughs> uh, for you. Uh, but you. But but th- these guys were Facebook friends, right? And the whole uh, occupation was enabled by social media. They were able right. to bring in a flock of disparate armed people who were inspired by Ammon. Right. Um, and this this brought together the, the militia movement, which is actually incredibly disorganized. It's mostly like five people. People here and there sitting in a pizza parlor eating really bad, <laughs> eating really bad pizza in some little town in the West. With a gun. Talking about tyranny and then maybe planning to like pick up some garbage <laughs> as a community project yeah. and then meet at the at the firing range. Right. But Ammon inspired them and was able to bring in all this messianic religious content. But he was able to reach them through his very personal YouTube videos, which are very well made, mm-hmm. where, he, where he's like looking right he's obviously clearly trying to like communicate a lot of feeling to you and a very different kind of feeling than you, that we're, that we're used to seeing from like ranting right wingers. Right. It's all like an, I feel your pain, uh, yeah, Bill Clinton yeah, kind yeah. of yeah. feeling. And he was able to, to get all these people to show up there, right. Without any organization, just by virtue of feeling and them all knowing mm-hmm. each other right. and actively challenge federal and local sovereignty in this town and in this County. Um, just by virtue of that. And I think that shows us something also about, like, the disorder that we're facing mm-hmm. and the confusion about all our maps. Um, I was thinking about this a lot last week when Facebook announced that they're starting their own currency. Right. And their own yeah. bank. and
3: That's going to work out fine. And so that's going to be yeah, fine. It's going to be great it's, it's, it's be because they they've done everything else so <laughs> yeah. well and so responsibly. Yeah. It's going to be I, fine.
0: And you think about also everything that's been going on in these communities in the West with the disinvestment in public sphere and that collapse of these communities economically, all the sort of institutions of community life that might have brought people together are replaced with the internet that also becomes this strange There's a mirror of what they were able to do in terms of sovereignty that seems to me to mirror what Facebook has done to um, other structures, bigger structures Mm -hmm. of national sovereignty that we also saw in the 2016 election. And that that was all happening in this crazy, also mythic Western landscape that they were performing this Wild West kind of reenactment show on what turned out to be sacred native land. (laughs) And, you know, all these maps were intersecting there. So I just felt like all that is a long answer to come back around to your question. I felt like all that stuff attached itself to the momentum of the story and had to be in there. Right
3: the The other thing, though, that I think is so interesting and and this begins to show up um towards the end of the book when you're talking to all these guys while they're um, in Portland or in Las Vegas for the trials, um, is that it it wasn't even necessarily for a lot of them the the um, the ideology that they were so interested in. and. Or um or the message of Ammon most of the time is that they just liked being with each other. Like this idea that like finally <laughs> like they could hang By being united. Yeah. Something's
4: us. going on. Yeah, <laughs> something's going I on. Gotta get there. And just like yeah. hang yeah. it's just
3: like hanging out. You know, the, the value of hanging out. And it occurred to me like for a lot of these guys, and there's some you do a wonderful job of painting um these guys in, in very complex life because of course they are complex people. Um, is is the loneliness of um, of what these guys feel in the real world? Like they might be the only person in their neighborhood or in their city or in their ecosystem that feels this way. All the other people that feel this way are on the internet. And then finally they all get to hang out together. It's like going to it's like residency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Finally, like you get to find these people that share your affinities with you, and you get to you know get all your guns together and live in a big nature preserve. Except it. it's also like
0: the end of it's like the end of the world, and yeah. you're going to redeem America, right? Or die, or all die yeah. together. The, right. it, it gives you meaning. It yeah. Gives you yeah, the biggest yeah, it's not only shot of meaning you can get, you get, get. Right? right? Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. I thought that that was really striking, and that was also the sort of the heartbreaking thing is that most of these people are just looking for a place to fit in with other people. And, and they're all, they're mostly men that you're writing about. And this is something that we've talked about on the show a lot in the last couple of weeks, because we read Jared Yates Sexton's book about toxic masculinity. Um, but it's also just like men who are caring for each other and trying to figure out a language to say that, like, I got your six, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah. that they're all they're so huggy and they talk about love all the time because Ammon's bringing this
3: right religious
0: thing into it and making that be okay,
3: right? Yeah, it's 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 right. such a strange combination of of um, essentially every fucked up thing that's happening in America <laughs> at one time, and then it's all because of it turns out a tortoise.
0: <laughs> talk,
3: well,
0: and, and, yeah and it and, well, the thing about the com- the community thing that struck me the most these guys talked like i like matthew deathridge one of mm-hmm. them thought like his whole thing was that this is the only time he would experienced community in his right. life and the best thing about it was that they didn't use money and he wasn't part of the war machine when he was out there and, so right. and but the the ideology that that they were that was above this and being circulated from within this apparently to some of their minds like messianic communitarian thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where they were sharing everything and, you know, um, is a totally hyper-libertarian individualist property lines and guns ideology that is totally the opposite of anything right like what they were talking about, which sounded an awful lot like socialism. It's right? a lot like
1: socialism. <laughs> it sounded a lot like socialism. Well, I
0: mean one of them, Jason Patrick, basically told me like he was like voluntary socialism is basically is fine. Everybody's gotta choose to do it. And his right. idea of it is like a Christian one in a small town. And um but that that the ideology was totally the opposite, right? That it's that it, that a lot of the idea every now and then when Ammon would slip out of the religious Register or Lavoie Finicum would they would sound like Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. which is when they also would get more boring. Um, but um, right. it did it did all it, it did all start years ago because of the tortoise. Yeah. So,
3: and we'll we'll leave we'll leave some things for the reader to figure out when yeah. when they get the book. But essentially, what this all boils down to is uh, the protection of a. Uh, of, of a, tur- a, a turtle, a tortoise, <laughs> a, yeah. uh, an endangered species is what is what brings us all on. So um, I and just the, have a couple more questions. And I know we, we need to talk about the book I haven't read that you guys have. Um, and I'm sure you guys have a couple more <laughs> questions, too. And the collision of that tortoise with Vegas. Too. Yes. So, so Vegas. The, the one sort of writing thing that I, I need to know about is so the, the way you have um, put the book together is you you have real-time events, you have memories of things, obviously, but you also do these huge deep dives into the vast history of every single thing. Like there, there is a historical conflict behind every single action that takes place in this book, essentially. yeah Or, um, men,
0: or many, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean,
3: from the smallest possible um, conflict between folks to the biggest ones, there's there is something larger that's going on, um, so you're writing this book. You have this idea that you're going to write about um, the the Bundy gang that's up there. You start running into these historical markers. What was your process? Are you are you like okay? I just learned this thing. I'm now going to read every single book about the Trail of Tears. I'm not going to read every single book about an endangered tortoise. I'm going to learn everything I can about the the Indian agents, which is another huge oh yeah, yeah the, is here. The, yes. the um the malia reservation yeah. yeah
0: um well that's where having a deadline meant that i couldn't read every single book because <laughs> i think that i would have Forced i it. think i would have preferred to read every single book but i i was not allowed to basically in the end so it was like everything okay. that like that got me to a place where i could attach um what i hoped was a vivid version of that to the the momentum of the story as it mm. pushed forward through first the the first half. I see it's kind of a apocalyptic western, and then right. a, and then there's a courtroom drama, right? So, um, but quickly with each, I mean, everything that happened seemed, um, and again, this is this goes back to the messianic time thing. I, I one idea probably that underlies the whole book and is important for its method would be Walter Benjamin's ideas about messianic time mm-hmm. and, and In relation to the study of history in a more active um, For him, it would be a revolutionary fashion where the idea is that um, In the present elements of the past form a re- appear to you Because they have a relationship to what's happening to you now mm-hmm. and that in writing that we make images, not images like video images, but written images on the page that language images are particularly great at capturing that intertwined embeddedness of that moment in the past and the present that is appearing to you now mm-hmm. for a reason, because mm-hmm. it, it is illuminating what's happening in your present. Right. And that's why it's becoming clear to you. And it's it's necessary. And that forms a time of its own, which would be messianic time, which is not the present or the past, but where they're intertwined, which is the now. And there were so many images out there from the time they began, they were clearly both like operating in the present, operating on Facebook, but also totally operating in the 19th century. And it was all there. So it was, so I had to just follow my instincts to like, what is appearing to me from this perspective in this image. Mm -hmm. And that's where the writing became like a method that brought forward what history I needed to know. Mm -hmm. Like just writing about a video, for example, brought forward that maybe I needed to think about, manifest destiny in this particular way, or think about rainfalls and eclipse,
3: And then I got lucky (laughs) because there was
0: actually at the end an eclipse to bring it all to, to a close. There were a lot of moments like that that were really, is the book the, some of the most gratifying moments like writing the book right. weren't actually writing it it was before writing but i'm involved in the story long enough that i walk into a scene or somebody would say something i'd be like well there i know where that's going to be in the book it's right. a weird feeling that happened yeah. in your life and certainly with the eclipse when i met leland the scene mm-hmm. where who had given up on meeting him and i go into a valley that's completely empty except for one guy with a flatbed truck with a huge speaker system playing like beautiful, mournful tribal music as the moon covers the sun. And I'm like, oh, it's that guy that I've been looking for. Yeah, that was And he the, and he called me over was and was like, hey, do you want to talk about Wavoka?
3: Yeah. Who had been the person
0: a, that led me to the whole story in the first place?
3: It was such a, it, I mean, it, we won't spoil it for readers because it's an amazing scene in the book, but it, it's that sort of serendipity that I think also marks this book um, as something a little bit different. I mean, there is a sort of a magical realism that takes place in your book, Anthony, and it, it comes from both um, how you write it, but also... You know, there's something that you said, uh, say later in the book about the ranching life that I think uh, maybe the sheriff says, Dan says about like you're experiencing things that normal people don't experience when you're out here. in. Oh, Dan's a rancher. Yeah, yeah. Dave's the sheriff. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're when you're out there in, in the in the wild, like it's not it's not the same as living somewhere else. Different things happen to you. Mm-hmm. And those things seem to be happening for you when you're out there doing that stuff, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can, I can talk to Anthony all day about this stuff. I, I should stop and let you guys say something. I'm sorry. Yeah.
2: I just want to add, I mean, we should, we should move on to this poetry book that you picked because we're, we're completely taken up all the time talking about Shadowlands, but I just want to add, like one of the things that really struck me about your writing, um, is, and it's something that I feel like is, is missing often. And especially nowadays is really important is your, um, you're, you 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 I, you locate everything in 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 people's actual bodies and in mm. their faces and their voices yes. and you describe that very well and everything is like brought back to people's actual, like physical personhood often. And that is so, that's something that we're losing, you know? And I, and I, and I feel like so often nonfiction writing just like gets into the habit of, you know, you introduce a character, like this is this guy that we're going to talk about. And then you just refer to them by their last name for the rest of the book, you know? And, and like they become an abstraction and you, your book resists Everybody, like everybody feels like a real person yeah. and their, their, their That's actual physical body and the, and you know, for me, cause I never, I don't watch TV. I've never watched any of these YouTube videos. So I have no idea what any of these people look like. Really. I just know uh-huh. this as an abstraction and your book made them real for me. Mm-hmm. And and I had that moment where I was like, do I want to go look up these YouTube videos? I was like, no, I don't want to, because the way you were writing, it was actually more to the point. Now I'll probably go back and watch it, but I feel <laughs> Hurry like. Hurry up because captured- they're disappearing now. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I just, I just really appreciate that. And I think we need more of that in, in writing and, and it's not only, it's not only the individuals that you do that with, but you also create um, social spaces. Yeah. For so like, for instance, your description of the way courtrooms feel mm, yes. um, and how they have this sort of mystery and authority and, and the way that that changes the way you felt they <laughs> sitting there as a journalist, you know, watching this unfold, was it reminded me? You know, the only times I've ever been in the courtroom is for, for jury duty, mm-hmm. and it 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 reminded me of the same. Yeah, yeah, I had the same set of like, this is a weird space. Why is this such a weird <laughs> space? And you just analyze that so well. And I wish there was more writing like that. Yeah. You know, I wish that more people wrote about human beings the way you do, and and social spaces the way you do. I I, I really appreciate that, and I hope you keep doing uh, that. In another, oh, I'm so other I'm so
0: glad about that because the court then that 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 aspect of the court was so important for me because it's also like taking them from this space where everything they were doing was so irresponsible to put it mildly. (laughs) Right. Where they were just bringing their abstractions to bear on this real place. They knew nothing about, but then they take their bodies that are full of all this feeling and they come into this space of total abstraction, which is the court. And they may be even more aware of the fact, like this is really weird that I'm sitting here with all these people and they're right there. Right. 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 You know, and, um, and that court is all about the ritual that, the embodied ritual of producing majesty um, through what it does to your body. And we've got more of them now with security and all that kind of stuff. And it was just such an important part of the, of the strangeness of that geography too, right? Of of bodies meeting, of bodies being Mm -hmm. uploaded into a total abstraction, which happens every time you enter the marble of a courtroom. Mm -hmm.
3: The the other thing though, that we should note is that, um, Anthony is not absent in this book. Like there is some really funny yeah, yeah, stuff in here. And, you know, Anthony, you have some, some great observations about things. And, of course, the second half of the book is about your journey through this. Um, but I, I was just looking for it. I can't find it. But there's some point where you're talking about something and you said – uh, most people would realize this was a very bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, my God. <laughs> or or you're describing Jarvis at one point, um, who is a Native American who... <laughs> <laughs> seems like a bad motherfucker. Um, and you just, he was des- on the tribal council. Yeah. yeah. You just described him as a really big dude. <laughs> and it was like, I think that was the first point in the book where you'd use the word dude. And I was like, Oh, right. Anthony is still writing this book. He is a really big dude. <laughs> and he is. And he is. <laughs>
2: um, all right, so shall we turn to this book that Todd did not read? <laughs>
3: because <laughs> his, his read copy
2: did now. not arrive. My, time, yeah, my copy so has not
3: arrived yet.
2: It's a very short, very interesting book by Dolores Dorantes. It's called Style, and it was translated by Jen Hofer. Hofer. Oh. Um, oh, Hofer. Okay, Hofer. Oh. So the first half is in is in Spanish, and then the second half is in English. So I could only read the second half because yep. I do not speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, this is a very strange poetry book. Um, it's a pretty intense. Anthony, book. Why did you? Why did you pick this book? You're actually thanked in the book. We should. Have oh, this. yes, uh, yes uh, I mean, there like the we go. The first person she thanks. Uh, so, uh, so, so I know. Yes, I, I, know,
0: I know. I love this book. Um, and Dolores is an important, um, important friend, an important writer, and just colleague on the on the path. Um, yeah. First of all. Todd was like, Todd told me explicitly, like, your book's really long. You need to book, pick a book that's really short. <laughs> um, and I was like, I love this book, and it's really short. Um, it especially when you consider that um, it has it's, it's it appears twice, right? It's in Spanish right. and yeah. English. Right. English. Um, second of all, I was thinking about it in relation to some of the, the themes of sovereignty and geography. It's full of maps. Mm-hmm. Um, it's full of sovereign violence, um, personalized in this really embodied and terrifying way um through the use of address particularly the whole book is in um is in um direct address but uh, but plural right it's mm. first it's first person plural addressed to a singular you um and basically it seems to be a group of ghosts perhaps murdered girls um addressing their tormentor or murderer perhaps it's unclear right who seems also to step sometimes be you know, stand in for also like patriarchal authority and like the government of Mexico. And this is a book Dolores wrote after um after having to flee Juarez uh, basically for uh, her life. Um
3: seems like a book I'd really enjoy.
0: I think you would. I think you would really enjoy it. It's also another reason I picked it is I think you would really enjoy it. So when it comes in the mail. Yeah, um,
3: it'll be here tomorrow in fact. Um <laughs> and so some
0: of those some of those things. It's also you know it's very it's a it, it's very much that Juarez is not mentioned. I think it's very it, it's very much situated in the situations of Juarez, which is another brings in another real and imaginary border. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking about all those things, and I think about this book a lot. Um, so I was curious well, to talk I'd about. Love it.
4: To, yeah, I'd love to read some. Um, well, that'd be great. One of the poems number ten that I really. Um, I just
3: read number ten. Lovely enough
4: connected with. Wow, Todd, you're so up to date. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, considering that this might be about murdered girls or, you know, women's bodies in general, this is, it's just a fascinating little nugget of a poem. Okay, so number 10. We all want you to keep us alive. We want you to hold us at a boil. For you to say yes, and then some. For you to command us, get out and show me your tongues. We all want you to redden us, for you to cut across us. We want to receive the blow of your tongue and lose ourselves. Try to hold on to us and take us on a stroll. Try to discover what we are. We are your codes, a line of figures for you to subjugate. Numbers, red and brilliant, boiling.
3: Uh, That Um, that is so good.
4: Yeah, it's so violent. I mean these words boil red tongues i mean there's demonic imagery really there um it's just so striking and it's so this particular one it feels so fearless um and i was wondering if you guys felt it that way of like your you know your tongues your boil your red etc how did you guys react to this one
2: uh i mean that that that's actually one of the most striking Mm -hmm. That, that poem in particular, cause I was like boiling it, you know? Um, yeah. In general, I, you know, I was, I, I was, I spent a lot of time being confused reading this book. Like I felt very much like lost. Um, I, I feel, I mean like this is, this is not a poetry book that I would recommend to people who don't read poetry that often. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like this is a tough one. This is, and, and, and some ways, uh, I, infuriating for me because I was like, it's too abstract. Like, you know, it's nice to hear a little bit about her or like even your summation of the background, uh, you know, as vague as you have been is more helpful than what I, you know, just picking up this book out of context. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 very abstract um, except in the images, you know, there's these very clear images, like it opens with this notion of sky and branches. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's clear stuff. And I think I kind of have an idea of a a somewhat of a movement, but I don't know. It it didn't quite, it didn't quite strike me all the way through. I was left going, I was left wanting more specifics. Like I wanted a, a city name or a date or a personal experience or something that I could sort of wrap my head around. Is that just me being too, um, too literal?
0: Well, it's I mean, it's asking for a different kind narrative. of ex- it's a, it's asking for a different kind of experience than the book s- seems to be interested in giving, right? Um, right. Totally. Because <laughs> right. Like, this, I, f- I find that this happens a lot with uh, with poetry when people use abstract to talk about things. I see, I understand what you mean, but for me, it's yeah. like it's maybe it's it's almost like it's so concrete, mm-hmm. it's so about the address and the physicality of the imagery that it feels abstract. But maybe it's also it's so corporeal. In a certain way, mm-hmm. um, in its movement, and also in how so much of it is about channeling emotion through a dress. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're that saying it feels you're abstract, but it's not it's abstract a- in the sense of like it's a bunch of ideas being discussed. It's right. emotion being delivered as image and sound. Um, in also, I mean, obviously, there's like. Very specific content. There's a kind of a buried narrative that, that something's going on. There does seem to be a flock of, of ghosts or something mm-hmm. haunting somebody. Right.
2: Well, I guess that's what I was because there's like there's numbers too. There's like chapter heading or sections. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's it there feels like there's a structure. Mm-hmm. So it feels like it's inviting me to try and figure something out or to understand something. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. But it didn't I never got there, and you know? Like, I
4: think maybe what writer's reacting to, because I would say you're often very open to completely abstract things, but like yeah. The address makes it feel like answer to this, you know,
1: answer, (laughs) answer,
4: answer my huge chorus of violent
1: calls. It's charged. Right, right. Yeah.
4: And (laughs) it sounds like your reaction is like, what did I do? (laughs) 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 How do I, how do I apologize for whatever's happening here? (laughs) Right. Um,
0: And I think that like a, a male reader addressed by this book, it's, 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 it's very challenging. Yeah. Yeah, right. right. I I was curious, Julia, in your response to it. One thing that I I find the voice, the 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 anonymous that it's anonymous, but it's so direct and so challenging, Um, and so I mean, it's accusatory, but also doing so many other things. Um, It reminds me sometimes of something you see, like a, I imagine, like a political poster put up in the middle of the night. That's Mm. sort of like we know who you are and we're coming for you kind of poster, like that kind of that kind of direct address. Feels like part yeah, of yeah, that's care.
4: cool. And as you know, I'm I wasn't really thinking of the gendered stuff in here, but like I I felt like more part of a we, the we. You know, like yeah, I'm in with the, I'm down with the rage. Yeah, let's fucking go. Mm-hmm. Rather than like I'm receiving this, you know, like I'm the target. Um, and I wonder if that's just a gendered response to um some of the implications here um oh I don't have the one up in front of me that I wanted to have but yeah there's one that's like we are girls and that is just my automatic not even brain response my bodily response is like yes I'm in that pack like I've been absorbed into this wolf pack of anger and other many many other emotions in here so yeah Totally different
0: response. Maybe I can tell you a little story yes. about the strangest yeah. collaborative. It's the most, I feel, the most successful and most intense collaborative literary event that I've ever worked on as a sort of curator. Um, working with Dolores and Jen on an event we did in L.A. for this book. Mm. Um, but at this point, Dolores, Dolores, uh, lives in the States now. She's a ref, she's actually, uh, she's, she has asylum, um, because of things that happened to her in Mexico, which is very rare actually. Oh, wow. Um,
3: thank God she got here early.
0: Yes. Um, and, but she had grown tired of giving readings where she read, read in Spanish and then sit there where, well, Jen would read in English to a room of, of Anglos. Right. Right. Um, so she, but we wanted to do an event with her at, at machine project, a space where I did a lot of events, um, in the past, it recently closed. Um, and we came up, we asked her, well, you know, what, what would it take for you to do do something? You know, and we can do anything you want. And she came back and she's like, this is what I want. I will read it, but the audience needs to be handcuffed and blindfolded.
3: Oh, shit.
0: And we were like, we can do that. Because we can tell, we can put out with ad machine project. We able we can, we'll put out a thing. And be like, do you want to come listen to poetry while you're handcuffed and blindfolded? People will come. <laughs> and it it, was, uh, it yeah. was it was a very well attended reading, and we um, she wouldn't come until everybody was handcuffed and blindfolded. So, Jen and I and some other friends, we got some zip ties and we gently handcuffed people and blindfolded them. It was a, it, it was pretty strange to see them all there waiting for, her. and then she arrived on the bus and she was wearing like a a ski mask.
3: Oh my gosh!
0: And uh. She was kind of dressed. She was a little zapatista up. She was wearing some trad garb, <laughs> and she came in and she read and she walked around the the crowd reading in Spanish. And then Jen would come walking past her reading in English, and then she left. And then we unblindfolded oh, no. everybody, and they never saw her. Oh my god! And then they had a lot of questions. And That's Jen really and then Jen made them. Jen was worried about you know, how everybody would be feeling, so she brought them pie that she made. <laughs> and she gave the pie, pie, and we and we talked about their experiences and um
2: that is so it interesting. was so intense. that's really interesting i i feel like i mean just thinking about like even hearing one of these you know poems, <laughs> yeah. that context it changes everything yeah. you know it, it it embodies it in a way that is that makes it really really interesting yeah. um and it, it, it really
0: highlighted cool. some of the political elements too right. that's basically for this audience she refused to appear right for this yeah. english-speaking mostly english-speaking audience She was a disembodied voice. Of course, everybody was like, they just spent so much time with her right there, walking right past them, but they never saw her. And they heard her voice, but she didn't say anything in English.
3: What an interesting parallel, though, to the scene in your book, obviously, where two of Eamon Bundy's acolytes uh, shackle themselves to to emulate what (laughs) Eamon Bundy had just gone through, where he'd been uh, handcuffed, basically nude for 13 hours. Mm -hmm. And they go and they try and do the same thing to see how long they would last as a protest.
0: Yeah, it was like you know that was it was a that was fascinating to watch those guys do that because basically you have a total like a totally it's a right-wing right wing libertarian world of people who haven't been to art school
1: right right
0: <laughs> and they they invented like live performance art for 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 Facebook Live that was just like. It was pretty rich. You had a lot, a, lot sad, a lot of a lot of lot of sadomasochism, <laughs> yeah. a lot of Christianity, and right. a lot of political critique. Yeah, I was going to say it's so Jesusy. It's so Jesus. It just
2: makes Ammon this like suffering, you know, Jesus <laughs> And they were always
0: say they they right. would say like, "I we want people we want to experience with our what what he experienced and what mm-hmm. he went through." Um, and then that they were doing outside that 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 uh, core civic private right. prison in Nevada.
3: But that, I mean, but it's an interesting parallel to what you're talking about that she wanted to do so that people could finally experience the poetry in a more realistic vein to what you wanted them to experience. I mean, that's, that's, there's a a unique thread there of two entirely disparate human beings that that essentially want the same thing.
0: It was really strange about the Dolores performance. I think it really, it really, really troubled her. Mm -hmm. Um, And the audience loved it. Right. So, um, yeah. Which I guess really actually isn't very surprising. But in the end, it was more troubling for her and yeah. for the audience. It was like this exciting thing. Right. right. And, then like, yeah. and, and then there was yeah. pie. And then there was pie. Pie was really good. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, no. Just that for her experience walking around all these people, mm-hmm. that they looked like they were suffering. Right. I think more than, than they were.
1: Right.
4: right. Oh, fascinating. Right. Yeah. What I was going to say is I've never really considered, you know, for folks just consuming poetry, how similar the conditions under which you're consuming poetry usually are you know you're comfortable you're in a place you know or drinking wine yeah you've got your reading chair or your beach towel that you love and like to force yourself to encounter poetry specifically when you're in a different physical or emotional state it's just a fascinating idea yeah i'm I'm gonna try it yeah
3: yeah let's let's hear another one of these poems since I haven't read the Actually,
4: <laughs> Todd, I think you should read one or Ryder should read one and we should get your immediate reaction.
3: I will I will read one. All right. This one begins
0: with the word gold.
3: Oh, I like that. <laughs> All right, this is poem number 12. Gold work inlaid painfully onto the sky, we want to turn around. We want you to have us face down, your codes burning, the zone you cannot tread. We want you to hold us up pliantly. Line of graves and kidnappings for your consumption. Interchangeable faces. Doll's legs. When you wish it, the sky opens its mouth. When you wish it, the sky turns and hides you atop our arsenals. We cover our girlish faces. We are the war. Okay, my immediate thoughts. <laughs> if I were wearing a black turtleneck, I think I could do this and make it funny, which is not which is not the, the right answer. But but I understand what um, Ryder is saying about the abstraction, um, because it seems like um, it, it's like a um, I, I, I keep thinking about those old like MTV this is going to sound stupid, those MTV commercials where it'd be bam, 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 flashes of images over and over and over again with subtext running right. through them. Um,
2: right, so yeah, so for me, like hearing that, like there's certain words that are so <laughs> striking, like pliance or pliancy, I think is the is the way. and then, like, yeah, and throughout the 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 book there's there's times where just these these words are like grenade or presidency or you know, like these very like concrete specific things are like referenced right next to very like big words that have tons of meaning and interpretations like pliancy or you know, and like that kind of like instability of like never really figuring out where we are. I mean, I guess that's what she's aiming for, but right. it made me very uncomfortable, you know, and it's, and you know, the, the, the dismissive side of me, the, the non generous poetry <laughs> reader is just like, Oh, this is just, you know, kind of like sentence by sentence this is kind of like rupee-esque. Do you know what I mean? This is just like random feelings that are just kind of being put down, you know, and, I obviously don't like, I don't want to be dismissive like that because I think there is something much more intelligent and meaningful going on here. But I feel, I I do feel like it takes a lot, it's going to take more work for me to get to that point, to understanding anything specific that's actually being referenced, you know, as, as it is, it's sort of this hallucinogenic fever dream of like, Mm -hmm. oh, there's some girls with knives and. They're walking around, and they're gonna—they're mad at somebody for doing something, and that something had to do with politics and war. But I really can't get more than that. Right. Like I don't go beyond much more than that. So
3: my experience of just reading this out loud—the the shock of what the next line always is. You know, like uh, there's an expectation I have from reading poetry my entire life of what I think is going to show up next in an in individual piece of art at any time, right? Mm. So when I read, right. we want you to hold us up pliantly, I was not expecting the next line to be line of graves and kidnappings for your consumption. <laughs> like it's, right. it, it's, um, it's jarring. And then interchangeable yeah. faces, doll's legs. Doll's legs creeps me out. Like that, Those two words together make me feel like I'm in a rape fantasy somewhere. Totally creep me out. And so the, I like the sense of being thrown off kilter when I'm reading a poem like that. Reading it out loud is a strange experience because I don't know how to read the line and I also don't know quite what to feel. All I know is that I'm deeply unsettled the entire time. Um, it's a very strange experience, actually. Um, and then, of course, the 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 grammar's weird, you know, and the word choice is weird. So the experience of reading out loud is, is really strange. Your code's burning are not three words I've ever read together before, you know? (laughs) Right, Um, right. And so reading it out loud really sort of tosses you for a a bit of a emotional lube as it's happening. Um, We cover, and then when, you know, when it goes to we cover our girlish faces, we are the war. Well, then like that last line, like if I were, as as you guys know, I, I have a rich history of making fun of poets. Like if I were to do poet voice, like I could add, we are the war to, to mother and put it into any poem. And it would be absurd. Like, you know, mother, we are the war father. Why did you do that to mother? You are the war. <laughs> and that's not good. That's not, that's not healthy for me as a, as a person, but I, but I'm aware obviously that there's something bigger and deeper going on. And so I presume then Anthony, that, this is a series of poems that has to be taken as a whole, or are you looking at these individually?
0: I see it as, a, as one poem. Right? One long
3: poem. As one long poem made of individual poems. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that it's hard, like part of the, what makes it hard to read for us, I think like for, it sounds like some of the trouble you guys are having is that it requires, I think it's, you know, it's targeted. It was first published in Mexico. Right. From exile here. Um, and it's the book in Mexico that got the most attention of, got a lot more attention than previous books mm. of hers. Um, Dolores has always been a kind of um, iconoclastic kind of poet and refused to participate in a lot of the sort of government-sponsored literary life because of the role of the government in killing people, mm. um, which you get a, feel, a feeling of, of of that in this right. book. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of the stuff that feels abstract, that can feel abstract to a reader north of the border, feels like I think people are talking meat, like we are the war, the 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 nature of what that war is mm-hmm. and it's also its right. nebulousness and its presence in everybody's life and the gendered nature of that right. war. Um yeah is something that immediately is accessible to a right. writer living right. that time. And so I think that poetry is able to address that directly on multiple levels in terms of the direct address here. Re- but also going right into those kind of images right. because it the 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 poem was also speaking to a readership that's already In that space, so then it can start doing those things that maybe feel more abstract, like things that really interest me. Of like when you start having like a code, something as abstract as a code Mm. made physical and it's boiling and it's burned into flesh, gives an image. Also of a geography of of a nation, of a people, Mm -hmm. you know, um, being codified. Right. And also literally murdered randomly in, in, by, I mean, I think a lot of what's been, the violence has been going on Mexico for years now, the confusion of it. And Dolores has personally described this to me a lot, like who's behind it, but you know, it's not just the narcos and you know, right. it's not just the government, but you know, it's kind of all of them. Right. And um, there's a system, there's a system, but there's no system and it's right. everywhere,
3: you know, and the war is, is it's it's never ending and there's, and there's no point.
0: And a lot of her <laughs> point when Dolores is writing too, is like that, that so many of the things that have gone wrong uh, in in Mexico in recent decades are, you know, born by everyone. Right? right. Like she talks about it for herself too. Of like, as the war rose up around them in Juarez, that it just suddenly it was insane what was going on, but it had been coming for years and years, and everybody right. had just accepted it to the point where it was just normal to see to to see somebody just shot in front of you, or like there was like a she thought one example she gave was of a of a guy who did one of those like living statue things. Mm-hmm. It was Michael Jackson? Mm-hmm. Downtown in Juarez, and one day some guys drove up in a truck and sh- shot them with their machine guns. Jesus! And I asked her, you know, why? And she's like, nobody knows why, but that's just how it is. And you know, maybe they wanted, maybe they, they whoever they were, wanted people to be afraid. Maybe they just right. didn't like mimes, right? And, <laughs> no one likes mimes, and so they and they could get away with it. Maybe they thought it was funny, right? And she's like, you know, by at that point, you know, there is something funny about it too, right? right? But. Once you reach that point, it's this kind of war. Well, and that's that 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 being described there.
3: That's the kind of magical realism part of it too, right? Um, Like where what she's writing about, just in the thing that that I read just now, where you have things that are seemingly disconnected from reality, but that is in fact the reality itself. You're living in a world where a Michael Jackson impersonator gets gunned down on the street because. Someone can get away with it. Yeah, that, it's total that, impunity. That's surreal. Like that's, and, you're,
0: and you're on your way to work.
3: And you're on your way to work and you don't want to be late for work, but there's a dead guy there dressed as Michael Jackson. I mean, like, those things don't compute.
0: Or if you pay too much attention, you're gonna get shot too. Right. Like that too right? right.
3: Yeah, there's there's a lot there. You're blowing our minds tonight, Anthony. This is a this is a lot of complex stuff you're making us deal with. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Well, we're we're just about out of time here it looks like actually. Um
0: I love looking at this screen. I can see you can see you guys there and then you know the, the the recording makes us feel like we're all hooked up. We are our, all hooked up. We're <laughs> like we're but we're all like we're at, we're at like in a, in the hospital
3: like a heart heart monitor. <laughs> but I guess that's my voice. The
4: code is at a boil.
0: Yeah, there's that's the code is boiling <laughs> Yeah.
3: So, Anthony, I I've got I got one more big question for you. So, you've published a bunch of books. You've you've already done a bunch of great stuff as a poet. Um and obviously, you're a professor, you've gone around the world, um, you were a journalist in foreign countries, but this book of yours, Shadowlands, is, is about to change who you are. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm, I'm so excited that you guys have responded to this book in this way, because it's, it's thrilling to hear. It really corresponds to my experience of making it, so that's mm-hmm. really exciting. And it also gives me new insights into it, but um, I feel like, you know... This thing I've been working on for years is, is happening right? In, in different people's experiences, and that's great. But I have no idea. Does it feel different? it's going to happen to other How if other people are going to have the same experience. Oh, I, I think so. Does um, it
3: feel different than yeah. a book of poetry?
0: It does. Well, first of all, there's also all these people that I feel a lot of responsibility to who right. um, I spend a lot of time with, also who are pretty strong antagonists of each other. With guns. Um, some of them <laughs> have guns. That whole thing. And there's a lot, a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about this story some people who know a lot about it some who don't know anything about it right. um and um that's a little more frightening <laughs> i could i could count on you know nobody the responses to my poetry being the the the, the stakes were pretty low um <laughs> uh, yeah. and um I have to, no idea how people are gonna no, respond yeah. to Fox
2: News wouldn't comment on your poetry yeah. collection. Right. But they might yeah. have something to say about your book. <laughs> they might yeah.
0: for example right. for example, something yeah. like that. Or they maybe not, you know.
3: Um and people don't show up to beyond Baroque with AR fifteens, but they might show up to your book signings. <laughs> As don't scare just
0: a sort of like, you know, open carry uh, just exercising that. Uh,
3: yeah, are you doing a lot of events in open e- phrase, <laughs> se- Second the, fr-
0: second I the think, first. I really don't think that, the phrase, I think. I don't think this book is gonna upset anyone no that way. I don't like,
2: I think so. I, I think I. I think no. I, I. I think you have such empathy for all of the 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 real people in the book, and it comes across like it's. Because I had that thought, I was like, I wonder how Ammon Bundy is going to feel about this book, and I'm like, he's probably going to feel like it's pretty. Yeah, happy. you know, like it's pretty. It's pretty spot on, and the way you describe how, how these people, you you break down their philosophy, and you, I feel like you give their philosophy a fair share. Yeah. yeah, you no, know, like, I, I, everybody's voice is sort of. Is hurt and 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 argued extensively and, and explained. So, yeah. I mean, I actually think it'll be really eye opening, hopefully, for some of those militia people who, you know, who, who otherwise would be just sort of caught up because of yeah, you know, somebody they're following or a, or a speaker or some internet conspiracy theory. Like, hopefully, this will open some of those. Yeah,
3: I, I think it's that rare book of current interest nonfiction where you actually present all the sides. <laughs> that, I mean that's that's pretty unusual it's not like a Bill O'Reilly book <laughs> it's not like killing Lincoln or whatever the fuck it is that he writes
0: <laughs> although yeah there's a lot of those that's quite an industry like the Glenn Beck books yes. um, awesome. so yeah, Shadowlands
3: yeah, ladies and gentlemen by Anthony McCann it's out right now it comes out on uh, July 4th which is after July 2nd Tuesday, July
0: 2nd, on Tuesday yeah.
3: um, which will be um, before this uh episode runs um, so the book is already out you can get it everywhere um, and Anthony you're going to be on tour uh, where are some of the places you're going to
0: going to Olympia on the July 8th and uh, July 9th I will be um, on July 8th I'll be in Olympia at uh, browsers books with uh, Alejandro de Acosta we'll have, be having a conversation and then on the 9th I'll be at Powell's in Portland with Leah Satilli, who's the creator of Bundyville on uh, the podcast that oh, a lot cool. of people have listened to Which is awesome. And then on, I'll be in Seattle for two days at third place books in uh, Lake Forest Park and at Town Hall Seattle on um, the 11th. And then I'll be in L.A. at Chevalier's Books on July 16th.
3: July 16th. All right. And and Iowa uh, City on August 1st. He's going to also be out here uh, speaking at Arts and Letters in Palm Desert. He doesn't know it yet, but it's going to be in October. <laughs> oh, that's exciting! <laughs> that's, that's exciting. Awesome! Uh, so, Thank you so much for coming yeah, on the show. Thanks so amazing. much. Uh, it's been really so great. Thanks so much for and the for writing this book. Shadowlands, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff, and then the book that we read is Style by Dolores Durantes, uh, translated by Jen Hofer, and you can get it on Amazon. It takes about eleven days to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for LitHub
2: Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading everybody and
1: thanks for listening.